0: Hi, this is Open Source Futures and I'm Eddie Chu, where I discuss current news through the lens of long-term trends and futures thinking. I've covered demographics, geopolitics, economics and decarbonisation already, so that's four of the five STEEP buckets. So now I will finish this series with uh, a discussion on technology. So I've, I've mentioned before that I would consider technology different from economics and that uh, I will also cover a country's innovation system as part of the technology bucket. So in terms of the innovation system, it's about how it's funded and who conducts the research and who the initial buyers might be. Uh, so when research is uh, newly introduced into the market, it's typically very expensive and doesn't perform very well, or, or rather it performs very well in a particular instance, um, but that makes it really pricey. So. The first buyers of such a product is usually the government and it's usually through the military because they have such uh, uh, a performance sensitivity that whatever edge they can get they will take it and so they're usually the first buyers of something. So we've seen this actually uh, over and over again where the military is often the adopter of uh, for example microchips when they were in the 1950s. And then uh, they're the ones who invented GPS and I'll talk about some of these as well and uh, I'm sure there are all kinds of other hidden applications that we don't know about. But before I go further into that, um, let me just talk about uh, an overview as well. So again, for me, technology is too broad a category to be useful, and usually I want to break it down into different silos. So uh, I know a lot of people just think technology is just digital technology, but that's uh, not the case. Uh, Digital stuff is just one important but just one silo and there are various other things as well Uh, for convenience i will also use the term engineering just to describe the various other things i know this might cause heartburn in some people but uh, just for the sake of uh, for the sake of this podcast and discussion uh, i just find engineering as uh, sometimes a useful thing to talk about because then it allows me to talk about things such as materials and manufacturing and all that is in technology as well And then there's also, uh, people might not think about this this, uh, uh, in the past, but now they do. Um, So, it also makes sense to talk about biological sciences and the health aspects. And within that, there are also other silos as well. But just for this podcast, and just to keep you entertained for the next 20 or so minutes, uh, I'll just talk about a bit of these three things as well. Uh, Digital, engineering, and biological. Obviously, there's a whole lot of other things as well I could go into, uh, and uh, maybe I might cover that in future episodes. So speaking for myself, what I've been more recently interested in is quantum computing and communications. So people have this vague idea about quantum computers and how they are superior to classical computers in some respects, Uh, but quantum computers are really a different kind of computing altogether and you won't use them in the same way as you would uh, current computers. So, for instance, you're not going to use quantum computers to play Crisis or uh, WoW or Dota. So that's not going to happen for uh, for the case of quantum computers. Uh, instead, they will be very useful, extremely useful for simulating quantum phenomena, things uh, such as the shapes of proteins, for chemical reactions, making better catalysts, better materials, and my personal favorite for uh, figuring out superconductors. So. And a huge thing would be, of course, their application for cryptography. So if quantum computers were to become uh, available, and I think they will be, then we're going to have to create new kinds of cryptography to replace the current system that we have. Uh, There are also other aspects of computing. We are also looking at things that might replace uh, silicon as the main computing substrate. So graphene keeps being talked about, but we're still uh, struggling with uh, quality how to make huge chunks of graphene that are pure and uh, that they work. So it's not a done thing. Um, Maybe we'll be looking at other materials other than graphene. Um, A few years ago, I remember discussions about using germanium. So germanium used to be the thing they put in radios before silicon was used. Um, But I'm not sure about the status of that. Um, And then we have more exotic kinds of chemistries to consider. Uh, I'm not as sure about it as I used to be. Um, but yeah, so there are all these kinds of things being talked about, uh, about how do we circumvent uh, Moore's Law and uh, how do we circumvent uh, or use other things to get around quantum physics and the kinds of uh, uh, limits that uh, physicists are encountering at that uh, level. So the the other thing about this digital stuff as well is of course artificial intelligence, and uh, I might cover that in a separate episode, but um, I think we have um, we have come to see some limitations about AI, so AI is not this wonderful magic sauce. It has its own constraints, its uh, limits as well, and uh, you still need people to be in the system to kind of prevent or reduce bias uh, where possible, and you and we're trying to figure out how to make AI more uh, transparent to the human users and figure out how it came to its uh, uh, outputs. So. Uh, I think it's fine for AI to be recommendation systems uh for you to figure out what to buy or what to watch next um, but when it comes to um, things like on on videos where you get channeled towards even more radical videos, I think there'll probably be limits on those uh where it leads you towards more extreme content there'll be limits on those when it comes to live altering outcomes such as uh, uh rates of uh incarceration, for instance, or ethnic and racial bias. So I think those are still huge issues to figure out. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a clear good case for the use of AI as opposed to just regular human judgment. Uh, as flawed as they might be, but at least there are uh, rules for accountability and other uh, things as well that might be more transparent to that. And so we might use, uh, use go back to human judgments uh, for some of those in a more regulated context. But when it comes to of course uh, the work that we do, um, AI is not just used in recommendation systems, it's also used in various other things as well, uh, intermediate tools to help us uh, do our work easier. So I think increasingly AI is having that um, uh, job displacement, not not job displacement, sorry, uh, job polarization. So uh, you get a bunch of, uh, a lot of uh, low skilled people doing work for low pay, uh, whereas uh, a few people are able to maximize on their AI models and make a lot of money. So we might see uh, <clears throat> uh, more of inequality within the kinds of career structures that we have, and that would be a huge problem. Um, and we're also having the problem of having AI as bosses, so people getting uh, uh, burnt out, being overworked physically, having fatigue, especially in warehouses or in fast food contacts. So I remember, I'll remember always remember this uh, martial brain story called Mana, uh, it's a what six seven part series about how a i came uh first entered as a boss uh through the earphone in the speaker telling the employee what to do in a fast food restaurant all the time so uh I always found that story captivating and it and I think a lot of it has become true so I will go go back to look at it and it definitely makes things like such as the universal basic income a uh, subject of discussion because what do you do when uh labor becomes so uh commodified so um uh, we we'll call that yeah commodified um, that it reduces the human value uh, when it becomes so dehumanizing. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot about discussions about uh, how do we make work more uh, valuable, more useful, more humanizing, and I think um, the discussion is uh, going to become really major in the in the years to come. Okay, uh, so other than digital computers and AI and quantum and all that. Um, There's also about uh, I think a lot of gadget makers are thinking about uh, where the next computing platform is, and I think the answer seems to be with uh, extended reality. So extended reality is the is the, the the umbrella term for both virtual and augmented reality or combinations of both. Um, basically, it's about how are we going to interact with the physical world with a digital layer, uh, and I think that will be very interesting to see how we can. Uh, change the computing platform that we have Uh, so we might be using our eyes and our gestures a lot more than currently Uh, so that'll be really interesting to come and see what comes up. Okay so that's the digital aspect and then there's the bio and health aspects so um, I think one really interesting thing has been the convergence of computing and bio stuff so we use machines to uh, run through the genomes and give us the insights on all kinds of things so we're now discovering that things are obviously are hugely more complicated than we ever thought. So it's not just that the genes, are, that we have to look at the genes in genomics, we have to look at how they are expressed. Uh, so I think there's epigenetics. Uh, there's about all, all the various other things that go on in the genome. So I think there's something called the transcriptomy. Uh, and then of course we have, um, we have the proteomics, right? About how... The proteins are involved in changing gene expression or how they come about. So there's a whole lot of things that we need to learn and we're only uh, figuring this out now. But I think a lot of the advances we also see in cancer, in cancer treatments. So uh, we're finding out that cancers are unique and they have very specific mutations to them. Uh, But also every cancer has its own kinds of mutations associated with it as well. So even though both people can have the same kind of cancer in the same organ, but the kinds of mutations they have in their cancers might be quite different. So, and I think there's a lot of work in there right now. And I vaguely remember something called immunotherapy, where they kind of figure change your white blood cells a little bit to attack the cancer cells. So, um, yeah. So these are very promising outcomes, and I think in my lifetime, I think we might see cancer becoming more of a midlife annoyance. Something that interrupts our lives, uh, it's no longer life-threatening as it used to be. Um, and then I think the next stage would be, uh, sorry, not the next stage, but the other things would be how we figure out chronic conditions, so things such as uh, diabetes and atherosclerosis. So it's going to be a mixture of, well, of lifestyle changes and therapeutics as well. Um, what I'm also very excited about is uh, the progress we might be making towards the various kinds of dementias. So the neurodegenerative conditions, the Parkinson's, the Alzheimer's and the rest of it. So We are only beginning to study this seriously, uh, uh, really more intensively, and I think we are now at the stage of being able to characterize the pathologies. So it, it might turn out that there are different kinds of Alzheimer's dementias or different kinds of Parkinson's dementias, um, but I think this, this is all useful progress because then we figure out what exactly we're looking at, and then I think we might be at a point where uh, we have early detection and interventions that might forestall some of the worst uh, impacts. Okay, so in global health, um, I'm also quite optimistic because I think with COVID, there's finally a recognition that pandemics need to be monitored, need to be tracked regularly. And once we have that regular monitoring and regular tracking, then we can figure out global responses. So I think uh, the vaccine uh, Uh, development procedures are really exciting as well because now we have various platforms, various vaccine technologies that we can use and uh, mRNA is obviously a very big one that's really exciting. So hopefully uh, pandemics like the one we're having today will be a thing of the past but obviously also this requires global support and resources for that to happen. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to cover everything about engineering or everything about material sciences, but I thought I'll just go back to uh, something on energy. So, I'm very fascinated with the energy system, and particularly, I'm very fascinated with the thrilling promise of uh, nuclear fusion. So, nuclear fusion is a completely different process than we have today. So, today we have uh, nuclear reactors uh, split apart uranium and plutonium, and that generates electricity. That, that generates heat that, genera- that, that turns the water turbines and all that um, so instead of splitting that uh, we put together heavy hydrogen or tritium together and we create energy so um, a lot of places are figuring that out, the big places are of course uh, the US, China, U- uh, EU, UK uh, Japan the UK, China, Europe, US, Japan so a lot of these places are figuring out uh, fusion and I think uh, We'll probably have fusion plants in my lifetime, I hope, and then we'll we'll be in a stage of abundant energy. Of uh, what we could do with that would be quite amazing. And of course, all of this uh, contributes towards the decarbonization agenda, where we will want to um, emit less and less carbon, and where we can, we will want to, we definitely have to uh, put back some of the carbon we've let out into the atmosphere, and we and we'll probably use the energy to do that as well through direct air capture or through some other uh, chemical reaction. Yeah, so um, I'm very excited about developments in all of these areas and uh, it's just uh, quite bewildering to see what's going to come next. So um, I said at the start something about the innovation system and uh, I think at the end I also want to talk a little bit more about this um, in the sense of how countries sustain innovation And I think the clearest example is in the US uh, with their various uh, projects over the years. So um, people talk about a few things, we will talk about the Manhattan Project, how that focused technical talent and that created a lot of spin-offs, the Radiation Laboratory as well uh, created radars, set the foundations for radio systems and uh, I think microelectronics as well. Um, And then we, we have to talk about something called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So, DARPA is is responsible for making a lot of the world that we live with today. So, for example, the GPS. GPS was a DARPA thing originally developed to track submarines. Stephen Johnson covered that in Where Good Ideas Come From. The internet comes from two sources Uh, one's DARPA, one from uh, CERN, the European uh, Particle Research Agency. the the backbone the the idea of the internet was a DARPA thing because they wanted to figure out a way to sustain command and control uh, even if there's nuclear war, so uh, there's that and then Tim Berners Lee at CERN CERN figure out the web protocols to transfer information across the internet, yeah so a lot of these things do come from the defense side so for instance um, I think computing comes from Air Defense radar systems, um, I think this stage project, uh, was semi-automatic ground E, I can't remember what was the E4, but that was a project to figure out uh how a system might autonomously track targets and fire at aircraft. Um, so I know this is very strange, but it used to be that very smart people would do uh would calculate like oh, numbers again, over and over again for something called a ballistic table or artillery table. So they will do this thing to consult, for instance, um, you know, what's the elevation of a gun, and how to aim it, uh, given such and such conditions. So you saw a little bit of that with uh, the movie Hidden Figures, where you get to see people actually doing calculations about rocketry. Um, and then you see later on in the movie how they are developed by comp- uh, replaced with computers. And then you see how there's a process of learning and coding, where they figure out how to use the computers and how they uh, upskill themselves. So, uh, so these are not just like fifty-year-old, you know, Cold War stuff. So DAPRA is still influential today. Uh, the driverless cars that we talked about, uh, those were probably accelerated by a DARPA project for autonomous vehicles back in two thousand three. Yeah, I'm not kidding. It's actually two thousand early. It was in the early two thousands, or is it seven? Uh, let me go check it. Yeah, so it was in the early two thousands when. Uh, DARPA launched uh, the the uh, the unmanned vehicle uh, navigation project, and then uh, that that competition changed over the years uh, to include more and more realistic situations. So I think in the later editions, they had cars driving in simulated uh, urban environments. Um, but again, all of that uh, you could say was catalyzed by DARPA. Yep. Uh, so I have the Wikipedia page open up in front of me. It says the DARPA Grand Challenge. The first one was held in 2004 in Mojave Desert. So there you go. Uh, and subsequently, they went on to uh, to have similar challenges for robotics. So um, if you remember all the very nice, uh, uh, very funny uh, videos about the Robot Atlas doing gymnastics. So that's also a DARPA project and uh, yeah, so I have it, 2012 Robotics Challenge, so SPOT and Atlas from Boston Dynamics came out from this uh, 2012 series of robotic uh, challenges. Yeah. Uh, and even today, uh, we can receive the Moderna vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, because um, that was in part also funded by DARPA. Um, the, the reason I think was that they wanted to figure out a way to quickly develop vaccines if they ever encounter an unknown pathogen. So the idea was, if you don't know what the pathogen was, what what's your vaccine platform going to be that can quickly recognize that pathogen and give it to uh, to soldiers in the field for them to be vaccinated against? So even today, uh, you can hear the faint echoes of dark bra in everyday life uh, around us. Yeah. And of course, I can't talk about all this without also talking about uh, Mariana Mazzucato, um, the economist who's now uh, beginning to... Uh, come on and say in, in a previous book, The Entrepreneurial State, how high capacity governments actually lead with innovation. Um, and I think she's going to have a second book. I think it's, uh, sorry, not second book. A new book is out called Mission, Mission Economy. So it's usually, it's uh, I think it's about using the idea of the moonshot as a way to organize the innovation capacity and for the state to uh, come up to that role and recognize their role and uh, step up to the plate and, uh, fund these uh, innovations. So, uh, so yeah, all these things are important as well. You might re- notice that they also interact with other things, such as e- economic ideologies, or with uh, or with with demographics in terms of social. So, if you want to build all these nice innovations, uh, where are you going to get the people from? You know, how are you going to develop your own society, your own education capacity to do that? Um, so. All these things interact with each other, so um, yeah. So this is really fun to explore, and uh, I hope with these ideas, you can also uh, begin to realize uh, how complex this whole thing is. Um, but uh, fret not. After talking about this SDEEP, I will talk about uh, scenarios a little bit. Okay. So see you next time. So as usual, if you enjoyed this, you can contribute to patreon.com slash open source futures one word, that's open source futures, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash opsource futures. That's opsource futures. Thank you again and see you next time.